is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Vaccine debate switching gears a bit, starting to focus on the idea of a booster shot. The makers working on them, and now the CDC confirming that its independent group of scientists will meet and make a recommendation on whether they're needed. We'll explore boosters because maybe they're not actually necessary. Top pediatrician in the U.S. answering questions about getting kids vaccinated in case you're one of the many parents who still have some reservations. Big airline making it worthwhile for the pilots to get their shots. But we start with boosters and if we're going to need them. Dr. Monica Gandhi back with us, infectious disease physician, UC San Francisco. Dr. Fauci said it's likely people would need a booster. Charles Feldman and I asked when the best guess is on when people would need it. You know, I don't think it's going to be for years, if at all. I'm going to, what I'm saying going to say is an educated guess, let's say 10 to 20 years. And I'm, I, it may not even be needed at all. And wait, why is, why are we getting towards this point? There's great data now that natural infection or vaccines uh, produce what's called memory B cells. Um, memory B cells get stored in your lymph nodes and your bone marrow. And there was a study just on Monday that showed that even mild COVID infection, you develop in your bone marrow, um, this is published in Nature, uh, memory B cells. And we already had some studies that vaccinations stimulate memory B cells. The thing about antibodies is they're going to go away from your bloodstream. If we had an antibody for every infection we've been exposed to, our blood would be as thick as paste. So remember, (laughs) antibodies can go away, but your memory B cells are there. And so are what are called memory T cells. We have lots of data on that from natural infection or the vaccine. So putting all that together, what do I look in my crystal ball and see? Maybe once every 10 years, maybe once every 20 years, maybe once in a lifetime. But it's going to be rare, and it's definitely definitely not going to be once a year. Okay, so our bodies will remember the coronavirus for a pretty remember. long time. What if yeah. you know it's one of these variants? Instead of it coming in and my body going, hey, I recognize this guy. What if it's his cousin? Does it go, okay. hey, they look pretty similar? Uh, you know? Great question. So it turns out, and this is so amazing, the immune system, that the memory B cells that get stored, if they see like a virus that looks a little bit different than its friends, because now it's the B117 and it wasn't the ancestral, when they make those antibodies to fight, they will make antibodies that is geared towards that virus. So it doesn't matter that there are variants in the future. And actually, the same thing with T cells, that T cells um, develop very uh, complex immunity. The way to, way to think about that, and this is why the variant story is kind of going away and we're not as worried about it, it turns out that you have hundreds of places across the spike protein where T cells attack. So if you've lost 13 places at the most on your spike protein, like the B161 variant in India, where there's 13 mutations across the spike protein, hundreds of other T cells are going across other parts of the spike protein to fight the virus. So the complexity and the redundancy of our immune system is going to save us from variants. So why doesn't this all work with influenza? Why don't we, once we get infected with the flu or we get a flu shot, why doesn't our immune system recognize even sort of relatives of it uh, and say, oh, we know what this is, no need for a booster? Two reasons. One is our current influenza vaccines are not very good, and they actually are directed against something that they should not be, which is the spike protein. And we are going to make better influenza vaccines in the future. The second 
is actually influenza mutates very quickly and coronavirus doesn't. Um, they're both what are called RNA viruses, but influenza is very what we call leaky, and it makes copies of itself that are really mutated, and they mutate very quickly. Coronavirus acts more like we call it a DNA virus wannabe, which would only be an ID joke, infectious disease joke, but it looks more like a DNA virus. It doesn't like to mutate. It's not going to mutate fast like influenza is. They're totally different viruses. What about a world where some of us get booster shots and others don't? If you're at super high risk, if you've got a compromised immune system, maybe you get a booster and, and you know, some 25-year-old doesn't? Yes, it is true that um, just like we do with any vaccine right now, there are those of us who are going to get boosters more. So a good example is pertussis. Pertussis, um, as a woman, I received it uh, twice because I was pregnant twice. So actually, you didn't as a man, I think. So what happens is that I get more boosters because of my particular circumstances. And we give pregnant women, we give uh, pertussis vaccines as a baby. We give it as an adolescent. If you skipped your adolescent dose, we give it to you before you go to college, and then we give it to pregnant women. And so they get five, you can get up to however many pertussis vaccines. You have particular circumstances where some of us will need boosters and some of us won't. And the same is with immunocompromised individuals, that we have given vaccines more to immunocompromised individuals to keep their their immunity up. But, but to be clear, uh, even for those who might need a booster. You still don't think it would be yearly, do you? No, absolutely not. And I really want to stress that the immunology research on this um, is really coming out these days strong. This paper that I just told you about was just from Monday. And it was so exciting that, um, again, in the geeky ID community, I don't think anyone could stop like jumping up and down all day. This amazing <laughs> paper that shows us, this is how we live, by the way. Um, but this paper that shows us that this, even with mild infection, you got B cell formation. So it, this research is coming out so new, but no, this is really all pointing us who, that we are not going to need these yearly boosters. Who would have thought you guys would be such fun at parties? <laughs> Some people wait for TV shows. You should see us around measles. They're like, oh my gosh, this paper's coming out. Dr. Monica Gandhi at uh, UC San Francisco. 12-year-old kids, young teens now getting vaccinated, but a lot of parents, they're holding off on letting their kids get a shot. It's not that they're necessarily anti-vaccine. They've got questions. They've got concerns. American Academy of Pediatrics President Dr. Lee Beers tries to answer those questions, along with KYW's Matt Leon. And actually, it's an important time to really emphasize that that when you do vaccine or other medication development, for that matter, you know, development, you know, it really does follow a very careful process um, and really looks at the impact of the vaccine in adults first and then slowly works its way back to look at the impact on on children. And part of that is because children are just, um, you know, they're, they're often smaller, um, their bodies are growing and developing and growing through different changes. And so it's really important to make sure sure that, that for every vaccine, for every medication, um, it's is as safe as and as effective as it is in adults. What have, with regards to the, the 12 to 15 age bracket, what have we learned from like the 16 to 18 that made everybody feel comfortable about 12 to 15? 
you know, we certainly learned quite a bit from the the 16 to 18 year olds, but also from uh, also from the clinical trials in children ages 12 and up. And and really, what we learned is that the vaccine seems, you know, really does have equal safety and efficacy in children, teens, 12 and up. Um, and and this has been, you know, again, really encouraging. The other thing that that we've really learned is about side effects. This is something people ask about a lot, uh, and that the side effects are really pretty similar in in teens and adults, you know, a little bit of a sore arm, uh, some, some tiredness, maybe sometimes for lots of, for lots of teens and adults, no side effects at all. You mentioned a question, you get a lot of side effects. What are some other questions parents are giving? Uh, what are some of the most common ones that maybe you could address here if they're getting their, their 12 to 15 year old kid vaccinated? Yeah, of course. So, you know, the first question is, is why? Why why should I get my child vaccinated? And I think there's a couple reasons for that. You know, we're 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 really grateful that that children are at less risk for severe disease with COVID than adults, but they still can get quite sick, actually. Um, and 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 a lot of kids have gotten sick, and we don't have a great way to predict which child will get sick and which child won't. And so so that's one really important reason. The other important reason is that you know our kids have borne the burden of the pandemic in a lot of different ways as well. Um, you know, the disruptions to school, not not being able to hang out with their friends or have birthday parties. And so the vaccine can really help make sure that that teens can get back to doing all those things that are so important for their development and their education and their social emotional development. The other question people ask a lot is, is, you know, you, you brought this up at the, at the beginning, you know, we're, we're really encouraged by how quickly we've been able to get a vaccine, but sometimes people wonder how did, how did it happen so quickly? Um, and, and there's a couple pieces of that. One is to know that the science behind the vaccine, the science the vaccine is built on actually has been under development for decades. And so, so that it really is not new science. Um, the other thing to know is that the parts that of, of the vaccine development Development that were accelerated, that happened faster, were not the safety parts. They were not the scientific parts. They were the administrative and bureaucratic and paperwork and financing parts. And so those were the things that that, that were sped up, not, not the development of the science. And I guess the final thing I'll say, actually, you know, I, I, I as you might imagine, have, have looked at all of this really carefully through, through my work and my profession. And I have a, two kids as well at home who are 12 and 16. And, and, and both of them have gotten their vaccines. I feel confident enough in the safety and the importance of the vaccine that, that I'm, you know, I, I was first in line to sign my kids up for it. Have you run into, for much of the pandemic, and you mentioned that, you know, some kids get sick, but it doesn't affect as many as adults. Has that messaging that was designed, obviously, to put people at ease during the midst of the pandemic, has it boomeranged at all that? People are saying, well, everybody said that kids don't really get sick, so why should I worry about getting vaccinated? Is that a hurdle we have to cross? I think it is a little bit, and I think it is. It th- there is some nuance to it, right? Because because kids don't get as sick, and that's um, as as adults, and they aren't as high risk, and and they don't spread it quite as well. And those are really important things to know, and especially when we're thinking about return to school and the fact that we we can you know effectively control the spread of COVID in schools with things like masks and physical distancing. But also, kids still can get sick, and if we have a safe and effective way to to prevent children from getting really ill and to allow them to be able to ultimately back off on some of these other things, um, then, then, you know, that's just really good reason for us to do it. I don't want to 
you to make a prediction on something like this, but do you think we are relatively close to the vaccine being opened for, I've heard like two to 12 would be the next, or maybe the final uh, group they'd look at. Do you, do you think that is on the horizon? Yeah, you know, of course, you point out, you know, it it 100% depends on the data and the safety and that we have to take that step by step and and see what it shows us because because that's that's the process, right? Um, If things go as people think that they might, and as if they go uh, as as smoothly and and as safely as they have for the older kids, what what we're hearing is that by the fall could be a good estimation for when the vaccine will be available Uh, for younger kids, at least six and up. Maybe even a little bit younger, but again, it really it, it so much depends on on the data that we see because we we really have to follow that and make sure we're we're following each step along the way. And we've heard a lot, and everything it seems the tea leaves tell us there's a booster in our future, be it a year or two year. Are we following that same track for twelve to fifteen, and then eventually younger as well? We think. Yeah, I, I think we can expect that that the the recommendations for boosters for teens is probably going to be similar, if not exactly the same to that in adults. And, and again, you know, this is something that we, we have to follow the data and, and uh, the science and see where that takes us. I think most people think of a booster shot is probably likely going to be recommended as to how far out. We don't know yet. Um, but I think I think it's, you know, the the vaccine is is uh, working so similarly in teens and adults that I think we can expect we'll we'll see the same recommendations for boosters in teens as we do adults. And overall here, as we are talking uh, mid to late May, uh, mm-hmm. the vaccination rate continues to rise, but we've seen some stalling in some places. And is this final couple miles here on this journey going to be the toughest, just kind of where we're almost going door to door trying to convince people that it's important? Yeah, I think, you know, you're right that that I think most of the folks who were really eager, ready right away to get their vaccine have now have had access and are able to do that. And now it's the time where where families or adults who have questions just need the time to have those questions answered and and to talk to someone who they trust, like their pediatrician, about what those what those uh, questions are. You know, one thing I'm really excited about is that it more and more the vaccine is actually getting out to pediatricians offices. And so that would be a great place for families to actually sit down and have a conversation with their pediatrician about the vaccine and and why they recommend it and what the the pros and cons are and and why we're recommending it as pediatricians and then hopefully be able to get it right there in the office. Um, That's not not for everybody yet, though we're working on it, Um, but but lots of pediatricians offices actually all are already getting the vaccine in, in in their offices. Short break, and then it pays to get vaccinated if you're a United Airlines pilot. United, getting generous when it comes to encouraging the pilots to get their vaccines, comes as the airline wants to make sure it has enough healthy pilots to meet the surging summer demand. People booking trips, right? Holding off on getting vaccinated has its financial advantages. In some instances, WBBM Cisco Cotto talks to Joe Schwederman, professor of public services, director of the Chattuck Institute at DePaul University, about what United is doing. Yeah, this is really quite a you know, eye-popping story that they couldn't uh, reach an agreement to mandate uh, required uh, COVID testing by pilots, which is, you know, uh, uh, caught up in labor negotiations. But they did find a way to create an incentive for pilots, and it's really a pretty remarkable thing that they can uh, get up to, uh, depending on seniority, between 1600 and about $4,000 for getting uh, that COVID test. 
uh, we're all looking at that saying, boy, I wish uh, <laughs> I wish our employers would offer that kind of incentive. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've already talked to my boss about it. Trust me. Uh, so why can't they just mandate it? Why can't they just say, hey, you have to get it? You know, it gets into uh, what's in the contract, civil liberties. We know there's kind of divisive uh, attitude about COVID testing. And I suppose they could have pushed the matter uh, given some of the public health uh, implications of being in, you know, in, in the flight deck on a, on a plane. But uh, they found the incentive approach was better. You know, pilots have been through a lot. Uh, they, uh, the COVID period's been pretty tough for a lot of them. Uh, but, you know, United did avoid a lot of pilot furloughs. So they uh, haven't been too bad to the pilots, but uh, they're trying to move things forward with kind of a positive attitude. Yeah, and trying to keep those planes flying, right? I mean, you they, there's, you have this pilot shortage thing. I mean, they, they want to keep those men and women in the skies. That's exactly right. And uh, there's... Uh, you know, things are running uh, uh, full tilt right now, and they don't need pilots, uh, uh, you know, retiring, taking vacation, whatever, right now. So these incentives, I think, really uh, set the tone that they appreciate their pilots. But, uh, you know, the dollar amounts are, are pretty staggering. Yeah, so they want to keep the pilots in the skies because they have customers again. Uh, people are getting back to flying just about, not quite, but just about to, uh, to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, what's that doing to fares? Yeah, that's uh, really one of today's biggest stories. United's coming out saying that the tickets booked this month, actually the yield, which is the price people pay per mile traveled, actually is above where it was in 2019. And that's uh, you know quite a transition from a few months ago. We've been looking at a lot of routes, too, and we're finding, uh, especially uh, in some of these short hop markets, uh, fares are really you know, pretty high right now, and we're not even at summer yet. So it's... Uh, it's uh, Scott Kirby, you might say, smiling right now, the United CEO. Sure is. Thanks so much. That's Joe Schwederman. You see them on Instagram, posing by a canal or a lake. Several European social media influencers say they've been offered money to use their media presence to discourage their millions of followers from receiving the Pfizer vaccine by a suspicious agency that French officials reportedly believe could be linked to Russia. The influencers say they were approached online to say Pfizer was dangerous and led to more deaths than AstraZeneca's vaccine. Message informed one French YouTuber that an agency had a colossal budget. If he wanted to work with the company, he'd have to hide sponsorship details from the viewers. Doing on the secrets. A Wall Street Journal reporting the disinformation efforts triggered an investigation by French counterintelligence authorities to examine whether the efforts was set up by the Russian government. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on that Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.